0: Welcome to episode 242 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Denise Rucker-Krepp. Denise was serving in the Coast Guard during September 11th. She shared how September 11th changed everything, not only in the military, but in other aspects of what we now consider normal life. She worked at the Transportation Security Agency, TSA, when it was being stood up, and shared all the different challenges they faced with starting this new agency. She also advocated for both men and women to stand up to sexual assault. It is something that happens to both men and women, and we need not only for people to report when that happens, but also for leaders to ensure accountability when it does. I'm really excited to share Denise's story. She shared my podcast at the end of the first season, and I saw a considerable jump, so I really thank her for being an advocate and supporter of the podcast for many years, and I'm excited to have her as a guest this week. Before we get started with this week's interview, I want to remind you that you have the opportunity to listen to Women of the Military podcast now on Reese Across America Radio twice a week. That's Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. And you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. And now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Denise. I'm so excited to have you here.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to finally talk to you in person. Granted on the East Coast, but excited to be here
0: yeah because we've been connected for a while we initially connected the first year of the podcast and now this is year five and so i don't really know why it took so long to get this interview scheduled but i'm really excited to get to talk to you today
1: well thanks for having me
0: so let's start with why did you decide to join the military
1: because i was rebelling by the way it is, we gotta like parse that statement because uh, my parents were both army officers. My dad was career. And my mom was one of the last of the uh, women's army corps. And my dad for years had been like, you need to go to West point. You need to go to the army. You need to follow us. And I was like, no. And then when I was in law school at the university of Miami in the mid nineties, um, the school was not letting the military come on campus, which was blowing my mind. Cause they were like, the military's bad. And this is bad. And like, Hey, wait a second, guys, you know, I, I grew up in the military. I don't think my parents are bad. Why won't you let the military come on campus? And, and I got into a fight with professors in law school who were, you know, just determined to say that the military was bad. And I I don't know. I, that really pissed me off. Um, so I that, no me. I get into fights. And so I fought to get the military on campus. And while I was fighting to get the military on campus, uh, I had an internship with the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard came to me after my second summer in law school and said, hey, w- would you like to be in the, in, in, the, in the military? Would you like to join the Coast Guard? I was like, what? Coast Guard? Not Army? Huh? What's this? Uh, so I, I, I can still remember um, calling my mother up, going, hey, guess what? I'm going to join the Coast Guard. She's like, what? What? Well, what is this? You're not following us in? And by the way, you know, you, you went to law school when the military could have paid for you to do it. I'm like, yep, I screwed up, Mom, but I'm going into the military. So, uh, yeah, uh, filled my paperwork in in the fall of 1997. And on the Coast Guard's birthday, of August the 4th of 1998, I started my first day as a direct commission officer in Yorktown. And... I can still remember my father showing up at my graduation because, again, uh, my father was a West Pointer, um, had served in Vietnam, was a Ranger. My mother was an OCSer. And my father's like, all right, so let me get this straight. You didn't join the Army. okay? you joined the Coast Guard and they made you an officer after 30 days. What is this? And I'm like, all right, Dad, I, I, I can't explain this. That's your own bags to unpack here. But I am now an officer. And by the way, I'm not saluting you. So yeah, that that was my introduction to, to being on active duty was getting ribbed and heckled by my own family for joining essentially what was the family business for a long, long time. So that's how I did it.
0: I love how you expanded on the word rebellion and what that meant to you and how it was kind of different than what I initially expected. And we've been connected long enough to for me to know that you don't back away from a fight. So it's kind of cool to hear how that's been ingrained in your story from the beginning and kind of is what led you to join the military
1: yeah from day one absolutely yeah
0: so when you joined the military had you already completed law school and you were a lawyer for the coast guard oh
1: yeah yeah gosh i had graduated in may of 98 spent the summer studying for the bar took the bar exam and then four days later i was in direct commission officer uh, school and I mean it was great. They were like, "Here, go run. Here, go jump. Here, go exercise." I'm like, "This is the best thing ever to detox from taking apart. Like, I'll run and do whatever you want me to do." And and I did for 30 days. It, it was amazing to uh to come into the military in, in 98. We it was, it was supposed to be the peace dividend. You know, we had won the uh the Cold War um in in August of 1991. I can still remember that. I was heading off to college when the Soviet Union was imploding. So, um, you know, I was a Cold War baby. I had seen the Soviet Union demise. I had seen, you know, the first Persian Gulf. I had seen, you know, what we thought was going to be in peace. So I was like, all right, this is going to be a really cool opportunity. I'm I'm joining the Coast Guard when they're doing counter-drug operations, when they're doing fisheries, when they're doing migrants. And um, that really intrigued me in in the, the fall of '98. And then I was on active duty in 9-11. And all of a sudden I got a front row seat to seeing how things changed. When I joined the Coast Guard, I joined the Office of Legislation. So it was in Washington, D.C. at the old Coast Guard headquarters building and I helped write legislation. And they had asked me to do that because I had been a congressional intern and I had done congressional stuff. So that's why they they thought my background was really interesting doing legislation. And in the summer of 2020, I asked for an uh, out-of-specialty job in international affairs. I had grown up in an Army environment where I'd lived overseas, so I wanted to see what the the overseas and the international component of the Coast Guard was. So I I took that bill in in 2000. So fast forward to September of 2001, and I'm in the Office of International Affairs when we get attacked, and I get to see my boss, because I was on the commandant's staff, pivot from being a migrant drugs operation to a port security operation. So I got a front row seat to see how they wrote international legislation at the International Maritime Organization. I got Mm -hmm. to see how they helped Congress write domestic legislation. I mean, it it was an amazing opportunity that a young Mm -hmm. lieutenant doesn't typically have, but I was in the right place at the right time. and, And I just, I saw a lot of different things.
0: That sounds like such an interesting start to your career and also really interesting in hearing about the different aspects of what the Coast Guard does and their mission and their focus and how September 11th really played a role in impacting how they had to pivot in the work they've done. Whenever I do an interview with the Coast Guard, I always learn something that I didn't know, which In the beginning, I didn't know anything, and so I'm not saying my knowledge of the Coast Guard is extensive, but it's always fascinating to hear about because not a lot of people know about the Coast Guard and the work they do and how there are different opportunities to serve the military in a different way. So can you talk about those changes that you saw happen and what exactly they were?
1: it went from being an agency, not at war to an agency at war. I mean, it it, it flipped within, within a day. You know, I I had left Washington DC in, it was like September 8th or 9th. And I had flown up uh, to do some work at the Coast Guard uh, Academy and I was supposed to fly on September 11th. In fact, I was supposed to fly out of Boston and I had, just left the academy and i turned on the radio i was driving to logan airport and the radio said you know the twin towers have been attacked i was like what what and you know um then the pentagon got hit and i was frantically trying to make i'm gonna cry because that was an emotional day um i was trying to make phone calls to people i mean nobody I, i i couldn't reach anybody um couldn't reach my parents, couldn't reach my fiance now husband. Uh, he was on a ship, he, uh, and he had been, um, well, the ship departed Norfolk really quickly. And I was like, what do I do? So I ended up calling my dad's office. My dad is uh retired 06, uh, and when he left the military, he opened his own private practice in medicine. And when I couldn't get my dad, I got his office manager, who was a retired 06, who said, You're going to report to the nearest base because you can't reach anybody. And you're going to report in and you're going to do what you're told. Okay, got it. So I reported uh, into Newport. I said, what what am I supposed to do? And and, uh, the folks at Newport said, well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to keep your rental car. And the second thing you're going to do is you're going to get yourself home to Washington, D.C. You're going to drive around New York City. So I left Newport with a rental car, still trying to reach my office, couldn't reach my office, mm-hmm. couldn't reach my husband. Why is this emotional. Uh, got my soon-to-be mother-in-law on the phone, who is absolutely hysterical. Where's your son? What's going to happen? I was like, look, Dad, I, I don't know what to tell you. We're not more. And um, I, I I know your, your son's on a chip. I know he's safe. Wow, more emotional than I thought I would be on this one. Uh, But we're at war. And and you're not going to be able to talk to your son for a while. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to be the one you're talking to. And when Tim can talk, he will talk. So I I don't think I talked to him for about as week. I know I was calming his mother-in-law, my mother, mother soon-to-be mother-in-law down. I know I was frantically trying to reach my own parents who were like, what the hell is going on? You're supposed to be on a plane. Were you on a plane? What plane were you on? And... I can remember, I don't, I'm trying to remember where I was at. I was at some, I managed to get halfway down to DC. I got into a hotel room and I just remember like sitting in the hotel room in a catatonic state, just watching the video of the twin tower going down. Um, barely slept that night. Um, got myself back to DC, reported in. And it was like a bunker mentality. I mean, the Coast Guard headquarters is not next to the Pentagon. Uh, it was near Buzzards Point, but it was a heavily fortified facility. It was not the facility that I left. It was a heavily fortified facility. And we were now at war. A couple of days later, I got a phone call because I had started. In, in D.C., there is a, a a program that the Naval War College um, has it, it, it's uh, you can study in D.C. and take classes that you could take up in Newport. And I got a phone call saying that one of my classmates had been killed in the Pentagon. You know, I, I had started one day and everybody was happy. We're all lieutenants and we're all going to study and be smart and we're not in war. And then to get a phone call that said one of your classmates was killed because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was it was heartbreaking. Um, I had a friend of mine who uh Stationed at the Pentagon in the area where the plane hit, and but for the grace of God, he was not there that day, and he survived again. But for the grace of God, so yeah, it was. Uh, I'm sorry, but that that I just just to see it, um, and, and it was just yeah. I don't I don't think those memories will ever disappear. So again service not at war going against migrants going against drug lords going against uh helping fisheries helping save people lives at sea to then um being in an agency where we've got to be concerned about terrorists uh, because there had been the coal that had happened the year prior to that there had been the cruise ship uh, the achille lauro there had been um, other known attacks and we knew that if they were going for us on the aviation side, they would come to us on the, on the maritime side. So to see the Coast Guard quickly pivot and have to be concerned about, you know, the mariners that are going to be on our waterways, the ships that are going to be on our waterways, the companies. I mean, how do we fortify the United States so that there is not a maritime incident? And that, that, that's really what I got to see for the next um, eight months that I was uh, on active duty in the Coast Guard. It was... Uh, yeah, it, it it was a firsthand account of everything. Yeah.
0: Thank you for being so open and honest and authentic and sharing that experience. I grew up on the West Coast and I felt really detached from September 11th, but it also was a huge impact on my life. And I remember that day waking up to the news of what was going on. And so to hear your story and to hear the details and the people that you knew that were lost and just your whole experience was really impactful and eye-opening. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And then I also wanted to highlight because your story reminded me of now retired Rear Admiral Melissa Burt. Her episode was her episode was oops Her episode was episode 112, and she was also like me on the West Coast, but she was working at the port in Long Beach for LA, and she was talking about how September 11th changed everything for how they ran the port and the security, and I'm sure a lot of what she experienced was similar to you because I'm sure the stuff coming from DC transferred over to policies around the country. So if you want to hear another episode about what it was like to be in the Coast Guard during September 11th and just be inspired, I really recommend going to check out that episode.
1: Well, I've known Melissa for a long time. Melissa was my boss when I worked for the Coast Guard in the summer of 1997. So Melissa's the one who brought me into the Coast Guard. She's a rock star. She is just good peeps. Yep.
0: Yeah, I saw on LinkedIn that she retired, and when she retired, there were so many nice things people were saying about her, and just highlighting the amazing things that she's done for the Coast Guard and for women, and so it was a really fun interview, and I'm really glad to hear that she played an impact on your life as well. Well, let's be honest, Melissa was the first Coast Guard Jack. I was
1: so proud of her. I mean to say that hey, you know, I work for Melissa Burt. She's really cool. She, you know, broke the glass ceiling. She's just an amazing lady. Yeah.
0: What a fun connection. I always I always love hearing stories from people who are in the military when September 11th happened because they have such a unique perspective and so many things changed. And I recently went back to the Reserve Officer Training Corps unit that I was in when I commissioned into the military and they were teaching the training that I learned for self-aid buddy care and I never learned any of that during ROTC but then when I looked back at it I thought how quickly after September 11th I went through my training and then I learned all that stuff in 2010 obviously after I commissioned and so it was interesting to see how September 11th not only impacted what we were doing in the military, but today those changes have been implemented on how we train the next generation of service members. And I'm sure that a continual iteration and things are always changing, but it was really interesting and surprising when I went back to that unit.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it, you sometimes you don't do things until things happen. I mean, and that's essentially a lot training happens is something has happened. Now we got to respond. Now we actually got to think about how we address it.
0: Getting back to your stories, you said you were there for eight more months. Yeah.
1: So when the war started, uh, that was September. I got married in December of 2001. Not exactly the wedding I thought I was going to have, because uh, <laughs> my husband's on a ship and I'm in Coast Guard headquarters, and the war started. And kind of looked at the husband and I said, you know what? I I, I think I need to get out. Again grown up in the army and seeing my father deploy many times to many different conflicts and i I wanted a successful marriage and I wanted to have children I mean and, and I was very cognizant that it was um that was not going to happen in a war you know I, I would not going to have a successful marriage if we were um, two lieutenants, and we were trying to have successful careers, but that was going to hurt my marriage, and that was not going to give me the ability to have children. So I got out, and I formed a little a- or I, uh, joined a little agency called the Transportation Security Administration. So I, I got to follow my boss, Admiral Loy, into TSA. And so I spent uh, the next four years at TSA helping secure the United mm-hmm. States. And, and um, that was amazing. So I started in an agency that you know, goes back to the revenue cutter service. Then to be at an agency that wasn't even a year old was just wow. That that it it was just mind blowing. I mean, I I showed up at TSA and they're like, yeah, could you go to Staples and get some supplies? And you know, maybe you'll have a computer. And yeah, we don't really know what we're doing. Like, all right, this is great. This this is all good. Super Gumby, here we go. Uh, yeah, so it was. um, It was different. It was definitely different.
0: It's interesting to hear you talk about all those dynamics and those things that you were thinking about as the military and the world changed. And I think it reminds me of how much has changed for women in the military. And I was talking to someone recently about how the maternity leave ex- extended maternity leave for both parents male and female i mean same-sex couples all the different changes adopted parents and she was talking about how would the military have been able to support that during the high ops tempo because people were gone so much and there was so much stuff going on and i know that some of the policies are written that you don't always get these Leave options if the mission. So I guess that's their fallback plan. But it's really interesting to think about how much the military changed and how that changed your decision on if you should stay in longer or if you should get out.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I let's kind of unpack that one a, a little bit. So my mother got pregnant with me in the fall of 1972. Why is that important? Because right about that time, the army made a decision that they would let women stay on active duty and be pregnant. So my mother made the choice to get off because she, she wanted to have a successful marriage, but my mother could have. She was literally in that first year of like, hey, we'll let you be in the military and be pregnant. Because before that, you got pregnant, you were out. So I got to see firsthand, like some of the first women, again, growing up in the army, how they dealt with that. And it was hard. I mean, I, I got to see that, you know, you, you got to go to grandma and grandpa's house if your mother deployed, because usually it was a dual family. If they were deploying, a lot of women were married to men. And that was hard. That that was really hard on the kids. So I, I kind of got to see that. And I also got to see a military that was not focused on child care. And I'd argue that in the past 20 years after I got out, there has been more of a focus on child care. There has been more of a focus on, hey, We recognize that women get pregnant and we want you to stay in because if you stay in, then you make the senior senior ranks. And what I was seeing when I was in the Coast Guard was a lack of um, senior females. When I came in in 98, there were no female admirals. There was nobody for me to look up to and say, hey, how'd you do this? How'd you have a successful career? So when I couldn't see somebody in front of me having a successful career and a successful marriage and a child and I had seen what had happened to my own mother, it was sort of like, well, you know what? I've done four years. I think I've had a very successful four years, but I'm going to close that chapter of my life so that I can move on to the next one, again, wanting to have a husband and a family. So that's that's what I chose. And I think, um, to be very blunt, that's part of the reason we do not have a lot of senior females in the Department of Defense and in the Coast Guard, because women of my generation made... A similar choice like i did and said you know what i want to have this therefore i need to step back and step out
0: yeah in my own personal story looking back on why i got out of the military it had to do with childcare, care or not having women that i could go and not really ask questions but just be examples of doing it and doing it well i didn't have that most of my bosses were male my one senior female boss was she was single and then she got married and then she got out of the military when she had her son. So I think that the military's changed a lot and I think that they're made a lot of steps but there's still a lot of work to do. I mean, let's think about how much change has happened. My first son was born just over ten years ago and I only got six weeks of maternity leave. And then my second son was born about seven-ish years ago, and my husband, I was already out of the military, but my husband only got 10 days of military maternity leave, or parental leave. And now both moms and dads and parents of adoptive children get 12 weeks of leave after your child is born, and that all happened in less than 10 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I I mean,
1: because you also need to uh, add in like dropping the weight. I mean, I I, I can, um, gosh, I think the second year I was in the Coast Guard, uh, a friend of mine showed up and she was pregnant. I mean, when I'm saying pregnant, she was eight and a half months pregnant. She wasn't meeting the weight standards. She certainly wasn't, you know, wearing the uniform. She was wearing a muumuu. And I watched her struggle. After the birth of the child, I watched her struggle to lose the weight. I watched her struggle to get into this. And I'm thinking, that's a lot of struggle. And I don't really see the Coast Guard at the time helping her. I saw her struggle because she wanted to be a successful Coast Guard officer, but I didn't see something from the agency like, hey, we're here to help you. It was more like, okay, drop the weight because that's what the regulations say. You know, you, it's difficult to drop weight. I've had two children. And to meet it under a certain time frame and to do all of this, it's, it's difficult. So I'm glad to see that the military is changing and recognizing that pregnancy is normal, uh, dropping weight is difficult, and that if we want women to be successful, we need to help them. And, and so that's, that's why I'm glad to see things are changing. They're, they're helping people.
0: Yep, all those changes are so important, but let's get back to your story and talk about what it was like to be at the Transportation Security Administration, because it sounds like that was quite the experience. Yeah, Uh. so the agency, we
1: hired 50,000 people in one year, 50,000 people, and I mean, every two weeks, people were coming in, so I came in... Um beginning of August of 2002. Mm-hmm. And because I have a specialty in legislation, I was helping them with legislation. Well, the first thing we had to do was we had to figure out what our roles were vis-a-vis other agencies. So when, you, when you're a federal agency, you kind of, you're a little concerned about what does everybody else think about you and, and, and how do you uh, work with the others? So at that point in time, TSA was in the Department of Transportation. So one of my first jobs was writing memorandums of agreement with the other DOT agencies of this is your role, this is my role, this is your role. And we were frantically doing that in 2002 and 2003 because TSA was about to go from mm-hmm. DOT to what was then gonna be created the Department of Homeland Security. So I spent a lot of time with other agencies um, and, and there was a, they were they were grumpy. There were a lot of uh, DOT agencies said, well, we've always done mm-hmm. rail, we've always done mass transit, we've always done avi- aviation. Why do we need you? And the answer is, quite frankly, is, well, you've always done a really good job, but you've always focused on safety. And now because of 9-11, we have to be concerned about security. And so TSA was created by a law called the Aviation and Transportation Security Act, which meant that TSA was supposed to be responsible for all modes of transportation. So we were creating what we were responsible for. We were laying out the ground rules on how we were all going to relate to one another. So I I spent a lot of time doing that. I spent uh, time helping some of the airport attorneys. The gentleman up in Boston who was the aviation attorney was really burned out. We'd started on the first day and he had been going nonstop for about five months. So they sent me up to Logan in December of of 2002 and they said, congratulations, you are now the airport lawyer. Like, um, okay, what is that? What, (laughs) like, you were going to figure it out. So I stepped in for him at Logan airport. I was the airport attorney for a week. And I, you know, I, I, um, I think I was successful. I know I was successful mainly because of my military training, because in the military, you, you learned that, all right, you're going to be thrown into situations. You're not going to be ready for it, but you're going to have the training. You're going to rely on that training and you will go forth and do good things. And that's what I did in Logan had no, I mean, I, I didn't know aviation law, I didn't know you know, lots of different things, but I knew that I was a lawyer, I knew I had positional power, and I knew that I could hold everything together simply because of the training that I had, and a lot of that goes back to the Coast Guard and the military, so I did that, and, you know, and, and pretty much, you know, I did that in Logan, but then I was doing that on a day-to-day basis in TSA, I mean, it was, you are a lawyer, this is your job, your job is to protect the agency, your job is to protect the United States, Use it and do things. And and so that's what I did um, for three and a half years. It was just do what needed to be done. And that's what you just do in life.
0: That's so interesting to hear about. I mean, the TSA just seems like something that's always been there. and I, And it was created because of September 11th. And now it's an integral part of our life. And I don't think sometimes... We realize how much September 11th not only impacted the military and the country, but also in different agencies that were stood up and the way that we react to things that now are just commonplace, but weren't even in existence when September 11th happened. That's so interesting to hear about. I mean, the TSA just seems like something that's always been there, and it was created because of September 11th, and now it's an integral part of our life, and I don't think sometimes we realize how much September 11th not only impacted the military, but also in different agencies that were stood up and the way that we react to things that now are just commonplace, but weren't even in existence when September 11th happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, September 11th for us was the air attack. But shortly thereafter, there were attacks on London and Madrid on the mass transit. There were attacks in Moscow there were attacks on um, a whole variety of transportation modes. And we were looking at that 20 years ago going, okay, how do we ensure that that does not happen in the United States? How do we harden our systems so that we are not going to bear the brunt of that type of attack? We've got to be able to prevent it. And then if it does occur, we have to be able to successfully respond to it. And, and, And so I was there helping create the mechanisms to enable us to do that.
0: And if we think about the fact that since September 11th happened, there hasn't been another September 11th type event on U.S. soil, and I think sometimes it's easy to think, oh, well, it just hasn't happened, but the Department of Homeland Security, TSA, all these different agencies have done their job, and because of the job they've done, they've prevented things that we don't even realize are happening, and it's just amazing that this agency was created and has kept us safe.
1: Uh, there is a lot of work that happens, and you have to be flexible. Um, one of the things that happened in the midst of creating DHS was a natural disaster. And, and at that time, it was Hurricane Katrina. And so we are standing up security. We are making sure the airports are safe. Well, what happens when Mother Nature says, that's all great and lovely. I'm going to destroy the you know everything with a flood. And so we had airports that were um, destroyed. We had uh, people who were still trying to get to the airports so the planes could get there so that we could make sure that the planes were safe. But we had people that had no housing because, well, their houses were destroyed. We had systems that were taken down. I mean, we were doing workarounds because we had one mission. Our mission was to protect the safety and the security of the planes. So, if Mother Nature throws you a curveball like destroying everything with a flood, you still have to figure out how to adapt to Mother Nature and ensure that everything is secure. yeah that was those were interesting days, yeah.
0: I forgot that Katrina happened in the early two thousands and that it was another event that even though I wasn't outside of California, it still impacted me and it was in the news and it really did change things and left its mark on the future
1: yeah and and it it took out airports in um gosh uh new orleans and then we had mississippi and then we had a couple of of hurricanes right after and it was sort of like mother was saying you know you guys may have your plan but i got a plan too and you're just gonna have to adapt to me yep
0: so we've gotten to hear about your time in the military and your time at the tsa And I wish we could ask way more questions, but we're going to run out of time soon. And so I wanted to know if there's something that you wanted to highlight before we wrap up the interview. The
1: past 10 years, I've spent a lot of time talking about military sexual assault. And um, I testified twice in 2014 for a congressional commission. I uh, testified before the U.S. uh, Civil Rights Commission, written a lot about that. And I've I've done that um, because I'm using my voice to stop military sexual assault and hold people accountable. And and, and I bring that up because I want to encourage people who are listening to this podcast to understand that they have a voice. And people should always use their voices to help others, which is part of the reason I've done that. Um, Sexual assault is a crime. And it is a crime that has been occurring for generations against men and women. And I specifically say men and women, because it has. We hear a lot about women, but again, men and women. Congress has done much to help, but I, I want to lay kind of a, a bare statistic out. Uh, the Department of Defense has been researching, they've been collecting information since about 2010, 2011, on uh, sexual assault claims and, and reports that have been filed, in over 11 years, over 70,000 reports have been filed with the Department of Defense. 70,000. And that's just the known report. You know, last year alone, there were over 8,000 filed. So there's good news in that people are reporting it, because my generation, you didn't report it. But the bad news is that the numbers aren't getting better. And so for folks who are listening, I just encourage you, one, if you've if a crime has been committed against you, report it. And two, expect that the individuals that you report it to, to do something. We've got to stop hiding these crimes. We've got to stop saying, well, that's just part of the experience. It's not. Sexual assault a crime. So use your voice, folks, to stop it. And that, that comes in a variety of ways. Um, one, it's within your own command saying, I'm not going to tolerate it. And two, if you're in charge, not only am I not going to tolerate it, you're going to, you know, if you're in charge, you get to tell people you're going to be held accountable for it. Because we got to do that. Because, because I'm looking out in the, in the future. You know, I, I came into the military because my mother served and my father served. But if we don't clean up what's going on right now, how do we expect our children to serve in this environment? Should we expect our children to serve in this environment? And do we want them there? And for some of us, the answer is going to be no. Why, why would I put my child in an environment that I know is toxic? So that, that's clean it up. And then the last part I'll leave you with, it's, um, you know, I, I, I take great pride in having served in the military, but there are a lot of bad actors right now that are tarnishing my good service. So when you think of military sexual assault, think of it in the lines of somebody else is tarnishing your reputation. Somebody else is making people believe that the military is not a good place to be. So it's time to take those some people out and to clean it up because this is an honorable profession and I want people to do it. People are not going to join if they're afraid of being assaulted.
0: Thank you so much for bringing that up and for talking about military sexual trauma. It's such an important topic and there's so many things that are changing on Congress and there's things that still need to change and I've been watching and learning about all the different things going through the pipeline, but one of the things that I think young enlisted members and young officers or even senior enlisted or senior officers, anyone in the gamut, if you're in a situation where you need help and you don't know where to turn to to get advice, I know that there are women veterans that I know who can help you, who can provide advice and feedback. And I did an interview with Shannon Haug at the beginning of the year, episode 215, and she created Shield of Sisters, and they specifically help women who've experienced military sexual trauma. So if you need help, you can reach out to me, and I can help connect you with someone or give you advice or feedback, or you can go to Shield of Sisters and check out their website and learn about them. I'll put a link to their organization in the show notes so that you can find it easily. But thank you so much for what you're doing and for bringing up this important topic.
1: Yeah, and, and join me, by the way. If you're listening to this and you need help, text me, email me, call me. I'm helping. I mean, I, I've helped a lot of different veterans because it's the right thing to do. And if we don't help, then you're part of the problem. So you need help, always here to help.
0: And if you would like to reach out to Denise or to me, you can find our information in the show notes so that it's easy to get a hold of us, and so that information is there, and we are there to help you. You You're not alone. There is support, there are resources, and we can help you. And I always like to end the podcast interview with what advice would you give to a young woman who's considering joining the military?
1: I would encourage folks to remember, and and if I would probably give the same advice myself 20, 30 years ago, and I'll give to the young ones now, you have positional power. You know, somebody says, hey, you know, I'm only a junior X or I'm only a junior Y, and I can't change anything. And I'm going to look at you and go, really? You, in and of yourself, just by being who you are, have positional power. Never underestimate what you have. Never underestimate what you can do. Never look at the mirror and say, well, nobody's ever done this before. And next, you think those of us who've been smashing glass ceilings for a while, you know, you know, looked at ourselves and said, oh, well, nobody's ever done this. Yeah. Okay. And you have positional power. Use it. Enjoy it. Have fun. But here's the other thing. And I'm going to make it ask of people, if you're going to smash a glass ceiling and you're going to do this, Write it down, preserve it, record it. Make sure that the folks who follow you know about it. It's part of the reason I do a lot of writing because I want people to understand that they're not the first. I want them to know that somebody else had the same struggle and here are lessons learned. So share your lessons learned with somebody else who's going to follow you in 40, 60 years, but give them an opportunity to learn. So they don't look at themselves in the mirror and go, huh, I don't know what I'm doing here. Does anybody else have this problem? Share your lessons and realize that you can do whatever you want to do.
0: I love it. Such great advice. And I started the podcast because I wanted to hear the stories of women who served in the military, because when I started learning about them, I wanted to know more and it was hard to find stories. And I, just started hearing more and more stories and i was more and more enthralled and captivated so i just it's just such an honor to be able to share our stories and to be able to help impact all the people who get to listen to our stories and learn about what women have done in the military so thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast i really appreciate your time thank you very much and
1: can i do one last plug for something June 12th is going to be the 75th anniversary of the Women's Armed Forces Integration Act. Why am I doing that? Because June 12th is the reason we all can now serve. Women in World War I and World War II were told, thank you very much for your service. Now go home and go back to the kitchen. And because of amazing ladies who said, yeah, no, they went to Congress and said, you know what? We can do this. 75 years ago this summer, President Truman signed the law. So I just want to give a shout out to all the ladies who fought and fought to make sure that we could serve. So I just want to say thank you to them because, well, you guys are the reason I work, you know, blue, and I just, I, I can never thank you enough for all this woman who did what they did. So thank you.
0: I think that's the perfect way to end it, even though this is going live after June 12th because I got ready for the summer before I got ready for the summer and recorded this back in May, but I hope that you remember the women who advocated to allow women to serve in the military and all the women who have served and what they have done to change the military for us and continue to change it. So thanks everyone for listening. I really hope you have a great week and we'll be back next week with another episode.